0: Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we are going to be looking back at a year of President Macron. It's almost exactly a year to the day since he shot to prominence as a surprise president of France breaking all the predictions the hopes and dreams of all of the other mainstream political parties and he has rarely been out of the news over the last year but to help me make sense of what he's actually achieved beyond all the the heat and light what has changed in France what has changed in French foreign policy and what has changed in global politics we have an all-star cast from Paris we have regular uh, Macron watcher and commentator Manuel Lafon-Hapnouy, Hapnoui, is the head of, our, of ECFR's office there and a senior policy fellow at ECFR. From Sofia, we have Vesela Chanova, who is the deputy director for programs and advocacy at ECFR, and has been uh, also watching uh, Macron and uh, from the perspective of the Bulgarian presidency, seeing how they've engaged with the, the new presidency of the EU. And here sitting with me in Berlin is Anmut Muller, who is one of the co-heads of our office in Berlin and also a senior policy fellow at ECFR. So maybe we should go back a year and think about how Europeans looked at at Macron's election. I I remember the nail-biting weeks before he was elected. A lot of people were scared about President Marine Le Pen coming to to the European stage. So there was a a degree of of relief um, in some places. But I think there were some sort of hopes and anxieties as well. Maybe we should start in France, uh, given that he is, after
1: all, president of France.
0: Manuel, what do you think the the kind of mood was a a year ago?
1: I think the mood was uh, exactly what you just said, that people were relieved. And there was a sense that... uh, it, it could be a different, uh, a different period for France's role in Europe with compared to the five and actually even the 10 previous years. Sarkozy and Hollande certainly had very different, uh, a different approach of uh, EU policy and EU politics. And Macron seemed to be coming with his own brand, especially the fact that he had campaigned on a very bold and uh, unabashed pro-European, pro-EU actually stance was seen as something which raised optimism. But already there, you could see that it was an optimism which was not full adhesion and full uh, support to Macron's agenda. It was just that it seemed it was going to be easier to deal with this government, which will, would follow uh, EU rules and, uh, and try to work with EU partners rather than full uh, support for, for Macron's agenda. On, on the very many issues uh, where he thinks where he had campaigned uh, for change in Europe. And what about the, the view from Berlin? And um, I remember
0: the first press conference between um, Merkel and Macron, where Merkel quoted, was it Thomas Mann? No, or somebody, no, Heine Schreiner, the magic of new beginning.
2: beginnings. <laughs> um, and she uh, talked about that on his um, last visit here in Berlin a couple of weeks ago and said, well, we had to suspend a little bit the new beginning because of the German coalition talks taking so long, but um, uh, suggested that uh, sort of that spirit would return. Um, I have my doubts about that. I do remember, Manuel, uh, we were sitting a year ago doing a podcast in a similar way. And I felt quite excited around that time um, because there was somebody really talking about Europe in a very different way. And um, when it comes to the German uh, environment here in Berlin, Mark suggested that uh, there was a feeling of relief. Well, there was a deep, deep relief, clearly in Berlin, because the talk um, prior to the presidential vote was, if this goes wrong, this is it. We can pack up. This is no longer going to be a European Union that we can hold together. And um, expectations were very high. Um, People also, I mean, in a way sort of... Government circles knew Macron, knew his ideas. There had been exchange, of course, in his previous roles as as minister, but he also was a new type of politician hitting the German scene because of his youthfulness, because of his way of engaging with wider audiences, which is not precisely Merkel's style. Um, she was quite, I mean, her body language when he first came for visit was excitement um, and I think she was uh, genuinely excited. But also I think um, people here are trying to make sense of you know, who exactly he is with this amazing ambition to change things in France, to change things in the European Union, uh, to come up with a vision of 70-something um, reform steps for the EU, I'm not sure whether... Macron is really fully understood here also in his intellectual vision and ideas about society, the future of our economies. It's rather comprehensive um, and sort of a lot bigger than some of the things that have been discussed here, which were a lot more pragmatic. So I think there is still, after a year, a kind of, well, who is this? Um, uh, uh, in a way, in the wider public, an interest, um, and uh, on the other hand, of course, a degree of, um, well, uh, fatigue in the sense that people uh, want to see the EU changing and not having having big talks. So I think that is something he'll be caught up in when he returns to this country later this week, um, getting the uh, Charlemagne Prize.
0: So we'll talk a bit more about what's actually happened as a result of the year, but maybe, Vesa, you can also go back a year. Were people in, in Eastern Europe sharing the same level of enthusiasm about, about the promise of Macron as, as the Germans did?
3: I frankly don't remember how it looked like exactly a year ago. it so many things have happened since then, but uh, um, my kind of broad feeling from back then was that um, you know people thought that we need a counterbalance uh, to a very strong Germany. Merkel was still very, very strong and uh, uh, she was uh, although trying not to be named the leader, clearly the leader of Europe. Um, and the election of Macron was uh, a little bit the hope to get um, a French-German Europe, which is, however, uh, not too dominant um, vis-a-vis the, the the new member states. I mean, remember that um, Hollande had totally uh, disengaged from the view of Central and Eastern Europe uh, from uh, this part uh, of the continent. Um, And uh, we did not uh, really have a strong sense that France cared. Uh, It was, in a way, uh, Germany land. So um, Central and Eastern Europe was looking towards getting a more balanced Uh, European view uh, and and balance out. Okay.
0: Slight correction for people still listening to the podcast from the beginning. It was Haman Hesse that said, um, talked about the magic of new beginnings. But, um, Vessa, do you not. I've got a slight memory that people were already worried then about how Macron had quite a a kind of. Old-fashioned Western European idea of of, of what Europe was about—a sort of can, I hope, around the Franco-German axis, with kind of concentric circles ranging outwards, and that the East Germans maybe felt worried that they might not be part of his his vision for the future of Europe.
3: I think uh, I, I don't think that people knew who Macron was. He was a non-entity really to Central and Eastern Europe. He was this young technocratic former minister, um, not really a political figure in a big way, somebody who emerged as number three in a running uh, where the first uh, two were the old kind of mainstream parties. I mean, all of this was relatively, um, I would say, um, surprising, but also, in a way, um, non-visible for Central and Eastern Europe. Macron emerged as president later on. That's why I say a year ago is, uh, it was much more about the notion of having France uh, back in the game rather than about Macron himself. Why
0: don't we, before we look at, 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 um, in a bit more detail at, at what has actually been achieved on foreign policy, on the future of Europe, relations with Germany, relations with, with other member states... Um, Maybe Manuel you could give us a little bit of a I, I noticed that a lot of the French articles talk about the bilan the macron looking at the kind of scorecard what would be in the in the plus section of your scorecard for macron 's first year
1: I love doing these scorecards uh, after one year after one month after two years etc etc uh, I think you need to begin by what happened on the domestic front because that's very key, including in the way macron uh frames his own action in Europe, where basically he says, and he says that specifically to to Germans, uh, but not just to Germans, that he is not going to reform for the sake of Europe or just as a a hand uh, given to Germans to, to get a compromise. He's going to reform in France because he believes that's in the French interest. And so he's moving ahead on that without waiting for... Uh, helping compromise uh, to be struck in uh, in Europe. And he has charged ahead uh, already on uh, on quite a few issues. And obviously that has brought him some uh, some discontent. If you look at his popularity ratings, uh, he has had up and downs. Uh, he's, he fares better now than uh, his, uh, both his predecessors did, but it's still uh, uh, quite a, a challenging environment. What helps him is first the, the French institutions, which basically have ensured with his victory, not just at the presidential election, but also at the legislative election, that he has the legislative majority that he needs to to legislate uh, for the next uh, still four years. Uh, And the second thing is that the political landscape is still very much under shock from uh, the upset that his uh, victory was and still is. And the both mainstream uh, opposition parties the socialists on the left probably even more than les republicains on the right are right now not at all uh, able to get any traction from this uh, discontent that you can have in the in the french uh, public so macron is uh, charging ahead on that uh, and he has also tried to uh, Move forward on... Sorry, on that, do you want to
0: just say what the things he's actually achieved are beyond the rhetoric on on domestic reforms?
1: Well, so you have the kind of structural structural reforms that uh, people have been talking about when they have talked about France for quite a long time, whether it's uh, labour laws. Right now, you have the reform of uh, the railways. Uh, He has uh, started with uh, a number of other reforms are, uh, on the way an uh, employment uh, instruments is going to work on uh, vocational training uh, and he has a long list of what he said during the campaign and that either have been uh, already agreed on or that he's moving ahead uh, to uh, to do this kind of uh, of deep structural change of uh, on especially on the economy side, but he's also talking about security, he's also talking about. Uh, Education, for instance, etc., etc. And so on the on the EU front, uh, as Almut uh, said, there was the uh, the German election uh, deadline. So he first began rather by laying out his vision, and that's the Sorbonne speech last September, uh, where there's a number of ideas and uh, and uh, proposals to move ahead. But I think the one key thing is this idea of what Macron calls uh, differentiated Europe. It's flexible integration, uh, multi-speed Europe, however you want to call it. Basically, the idea that those who want to go ahead uh, should be able to do so without being uh, um, forced into status quo by those who don't want anything to, to happen. Uh, and he has tried to work on that where it was possible. So you have... Some results on issues which uh, have been important for France, whether it's posted workers uh, or uh, defence, with the uh, uh, now infamous for people who listen to your podcast, PESCO, uh, Permanent Structured Cooperation. Permanent Structured Cooperation is a good example that things have not necessarily gone exactly the way the French saw it, but it still is progress on something that is important for the French and a good basis on which now the French want to uh, build further upon, especially with the uh, European intervention. um
0: Diplomatic way of putting it. Most people think it's because of the total failure of France to get its vision into PESCO (laughs) that it's launching the European intervention initiative, but we'll gloss over that.
1: I don't know if it's diplomatic. It's very Macron because it's the famous en même temps. It's both you do PESCO within the EU and obviously... Uh, you need to take into account what the German wants and the fact that inclusiveness needs to be taken into account because you can't force your way through. But at the same time, you are still thinking in very French terms on defense, uh, looking forward intervention. And PESCO is not exactly about what the European intervention is about. These are two different things and they can be very complementary if you manage to push both of them further. So I don't think... Uh, uh, the people who think that PESCO was good enough should not be pleased with the idea that the European Intervention Initiative is going to happen outside of the EU because I can assure you that the French are still going to push PESCO further in the direction that they were aiming for in the first place. It's, they want okay. to move on both tracks. Right.
0: So um, we, I'd like to, to come to, to Vesta to talk about some of these things in a second, but can you quickly talk about the foreign policy dimension? Obviously, we've seen these big trips to to uh, Washington, the meeting with Putin, the trip to China.
1: Um. Well, it's one, it's one of the things that Macron uh, put forward during the campaign, that he wanted France to be uh, back to the t- big powers table. And uh, that's what he has uh, worked on with uh, inviting Putin in Versailles very early in his term, with the visit by Trump in Paris on uh, Bastille Day for the military parade. And now Macron's trip to, uh, to Washington. Um, Macron has also been very active on security crisis, uh, especially Syria, Iran, you have seen the fact that France took part to the joint strike with the US and the UK uh, against Syrian targets after the uh, uh, chemical attacks in uh, Douma uh, last April. I heard from um, one of his close advisors that he's got a very intimate relationship
0: on WhatsApp with with the Saudi Crown Prince, Mohammed Bill Salman.
1: He's been very active in the MENA region. He's been very active, although this is less uh, visible in headlines uh, in Africa. He's also trying to put France not just as an actor on uh, uh, those uh, immediate security crisis but uh, to have the means to play a, the kind of the long game. So he has... Uh, engaged into raising the figures for French development assistance, which really had gotten very, very low. And he speaks about multilateralism and the need to get back to a more effective multilateral order uh, very often. The question uh, first is what has he got for that? And we can get back to that. But uh, right now, we have the Iran nuclear deal, which is a good case in point that having a good relation with Trump doesn't necessarily work in terms of results. And the second question is, there is actually little uh, role for the EU as such in its foreign policy so far. How much is that likely to change uh, in, the, in the coming uh, year? And
0: what do you think the big disappointments are, very, very briefly?
1: Big disappointments for, for the French people? Well, I think so. Macron campaign saying two things I'll govern from both the left and the right. And now you see that a lot of people believe that he has governed mostly from the right and from the right. And even the right leaning voters are not necessarily pleased with that. So the, when you say you're going to do uh, en même temps uh, everything, you run the risk that actually both sides are. Uh, angry at you, but he also campaigned by saying he wanted to reconcile France, that precisely his en même temps approach was to try to uh, 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 fill the gap uh, in between uh, different sides in France, and this is not exactly the direction that uh, the French uh, uh, society is taking right now, and there is, there is a sense that maybe is pushing his, uh, his own agenda a bit too, too boldly with regard at least to that uh, campaign process. All right. Well,
0: it um, be good to get some external perspectives from, from Almut and Wessler now on, on how they think it's achieved. Maybe we, one thing which would be good to hear from the two of you is this whole question about his European agenda. He laid out hundreds of ideas in the sovereign speech. But the, the most important uh, audience for him from the very beginning was uh, Berlin and trying to get Germans on board behind some of these core ideas around the reform of the Eurozone, having a, a Eurozone budget, a Eurozone finance minister, a Eurozone parliament. He first laid out these ideas as an opposition politician um, in universities here and got German think tankers very excited about, uh, uh, about them. Um, And there's been a debate here for a long time about what the German answer to Macron is. He stuffed his entourage with German speakers in order to to get these messages across. So his uh, diplomatic advisor used to be the ambassador to to Berlin. His uh, finance minister, Bruno Le Maire, famously speaks German um, and used to do some Scheibler. His um, uh, prime minister grew up in Germany and speaks perfect German. And uh, Sylvie Goulart, his first defence minister, was obviously much more interested in Germany than she was in in defence. And yet, um, you know, a year in doesn't seem to have been very much progress and and a lot of pushback from Germans, particularly on these economic reforms. How come he's done such a poor job of of influencing Germany?
2: Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I think it's interesting, um, just to comment on you know the expertise you talked about, that Macron understands German power. And he made that clear when he came. It's more intuitive for a French person to understand the notion of power. And I think that is something that uh, Berlin is confronted with as well. And that's interesting because Berlin had a unique moment of power in the EU so far. <clears throat> and here's this young, ambitious president who is coming in and um, knows that, he can strengthen his power both at home, at EU level and in the world by having a a new and joint understanding about joint Franco-German power. And so that is why I think it's very useful to have people who understand my country. Um, On substance, I don't think it's a surprise that we haven't seen much progress so far on the Eurozone. I mean, this goes back to the 90s. This is the old battle between the French and the Germans of how to engineer successful economic and monetary union. Um, In a way, um, same goes for foreign and security policy, security policy more so than foreign policy, um, where the use of force is something fundamentally different still. Um, So um, I, I wouldn't... I mean, in a way, I think there is still a value in what is sort of below the surface of a big media interest um, and, and an interest in the think tank world in encounters between uh, Merkel and Macron. And there is, a, of course, to be expected, a degree of sort of big statement uh, around the sort of June um, uh, council meetings about, you know, agreeing on taking the union forward. And that's not trivial. Um, it is important that now we have a more balanced Franco German. Um, tandem, again, that is really wanting to understand the 21st century to be very different. And then under the surface, and that would be my my last uh, brief point, under the surface, there is a lot of peddling going on between people in the ministries and chancelleries who know each other well, who know they disagree, who know they need to deliver somehow, and um, who will probably face limitations to what they can achieve together.
0: But one of the interesting things, I think, for people who observe Macron um, in France is he had this genius for not accepting the established divisions between left and right, um, the way that issues were framed. And his alchemy was, in a way, managing to just change the the, the dividing lines by being en même temps. Um, and, and the hope, I think, was that... Rather than having the sort of traditional Franco-German debate about Europe, where France was seen as a kind of profligate southern country that wanted Germany to underwrite all its debts, and wanted to bomb people in Africa and get and suck uh, the Germans into post-colonial French conflicts and uh, you know etc cetera, etc, cetera, that somehow he would manage to change the dividing lines and create a space for a completely different sort of relationship was. What I think we've seen since the election is in spite of the way that he's managed to change French society, he's struggled more to, to reframe the Franco-German relationship. And there are obviously Germans who want to have a good relationship with France, but France still looks like the traditional France. And you know, when, when he launched the European Intervention Force, that was seen as pretty toxic in Germany, the whole idea of intervention. That word is something which is kind of... Uh, rings a lot of negative bells in Germany. They think lots of Germans in the Ministry of Defence still worry about being sucked into Africa and into, mm. into kind of French conflicts. And in the Finance Ministry, you know, the new Finance Minister, Olaf Scholz, seems to be having exactly the same attitude towards French proposals as his predecessor, Wolfgang Schäuble, who's destroyed all attempts at, at, at kind of moving forward on banking union, on all the other kind of key elements.
1: But the change is, the difference I see is that, for instance, if you look at this issue on defense and Africa, uh, the Germans are actually deployed now in Africa and, and realize that there is something, there's a reason, uh, there are interests at stake for Germany and not just for France in, in doing so. Dated that, started Macron, that
0: started with the refugee crisis when, when Hollande was still... Yeah, but
2: now there is a credible partner, and I think that's important, there's a credible partner in Paris who makes the case for a Europe strong and united, who, when he comes to Berlin, the week before both Merkel and Macron go on trips to Washington and both sit down and talk things through and sing from the same hymn sheet. And that is tremendously important in the German environment. Um, Somebody you can rely on despite um, his ambition in, in ways that I think Merkel does not find so easy to understand, including the sort of changing the political dynamics in the European Parliament. You know, she, the revolutionary uh, side of Macron, I think, is something that um, is looked at sort of uh, with less appetite here. But, uh, you know, he's a, a very reliable partner in that regard
0: is he yep, I mean, it I, a small
2: thing. I I mm-hmm.
0: can't imagine that that's how the, the chancellery saw him when they were arranging their trip to Washington after Macron had been there and all their headlines were about how crap the chancellor was doing trips to Washington compared to Macron's blazing I glory. think
2: Angela Merkel's <laughs> ego is not uh, that big she gets onto stuff you know she wants to I I think it was uh, a little bit a sort of media exaggeration you know to, to to talk about it like this I think the Germans were pretty happy about how things uh, were going by and large. And, you know, there's a difference between a state visit and a sort of more functional uh, visit. And Merkel knew what the game was she was entering. This was going to be a hostile environment.
0: So, Vessa, what's your take? I mean, you've both spent a lot of time here in Germany as well and know Germany very well, but also you've been sitting in, in Sofia during the presidency and seeing um, how all of the discussions during the presidency have go To what extent has Macron changed the French role within the, the EU
1: system?
3: I think the imagination of European publics uh, needed him uh, desperately uh, in a way, uh, needed kind of a new visionary and he was the one uh, to have that vision. Um, but I'm a little bit afraid that uh, we're projecting a, li- a little bit of a, you know, superhuman power onto him and our expectations of him. Uh, and he's
0: Jupiter. May- so. It's not just us that projected onto him
3: without a reason you know in a way Macron looks like the european response uh, to the strongman fashion around the world uh we have uh, neighbors who cherish uh, strongmen and i'm talking about not only mr putin but also mr erdogan um, and of course you have uh uh, the U.S. and you have China and Europe needed somebody who would have this Jupiterian uh, nature to him. Yet Europe is not really about having a Jupiter, right? So either you, Europe will will be changing or uh, Jupiter will have to uh, to kind of get more humble. And so I think, in a way, uh, so
0: he's going to be the more like Prometheus.
3: The <laughs> I think the question at the European elections will be what kind of European kind of vision do the European public support? Whether this kind of uh, uh, managing both the left and the right uh, and coming from above uh, is serving the purpose and how much, for example, on March can, can find allies in Central and Eastern Europe? This will be one big question. Do we talk, when we talk about the flexible Europe vision of Macron, do we actually talk about the club of of the old and the rich, and the rich member states, um, um, the core Europe, um, and and leave all the others uh, to, you know, um, to to go their own way, in a way. So I think um, the... Reality uh, sometimes is uh, is uh, more complicated. Also, uh, seen from uh, from different corners of Europe, uh, we saw that Macron was trying to make a point of his um, special relationship with Trump. It didn't work on Iran. Um, he did try to make uh, a case of uh, taming Central and Eastern Europeans again, in a personal relationship of some kind, on the posted Workers Directive. It did work uh, back then, and now uh, there is a new directive, which was introduced by France and Germany, on the transport workers. And I think this uh, trust that there will be policies with that respect the interests of, uh, of those countries who are catching up, um, this hope is is kind of fading away a little bit and so the the, the limitations of how much one can really do i think should also be taken into account
0: and do you think i mean presumably a lot of these things will be tested over the next year with the european elections and then the the kind of scramble for the jobs in the european institutions i i was in frankfurt the other day talking to people in the the European Central Bank who are kind of wondering about who's going to replace um, uh, Mario Draghi There's talk about about Weitmann the German the head of the Bundesbank as a possible candidate, but then they also talk about possibly having uh, a French person or a German as president of the European Commission um, in the form of of um, of either I even heard uh, um, Ursula von der Leyen's name. She seems to be linked with every single international job at the moment, from NATO to, to the European Commission. But also um, uh, Manfred Weber, I think, wants to be a candidate for, for, for a Spitzenkandidat for the, for the EPP group. And, and Barnier also wants to be that. So how would East, Central and Eastern Europe take to a kind of uh, Franco-German stitch-up right, where you had a, a French person and a German person in the two kind of most important jobs? Is that... Would that be the worst come fears?
3: formation of uh, of those fears that uh, you have uh, Core Europe, Um, it's not only about France and Germany, but mainly about France and Germany. Um, And uh, to penetrate into Core Europe, it will be very difficult. Look at the budget, for example. Um, The European Defence Fund will be a case in point. Um, the uh, spending on defense is supposed to go up by twenty two times. Does it mean that um, the companies from Central and Eastern Europe who are in the defense industry are going to to have a um, a proportionate uh, part of that or not these are These are the things that are going to matter in the next uh, uh, months of negotiation of the budget and the other negotiation, of course, you're right, will be about uh, the top jobs in the EU.
2: The, on, the, on the core Europe and, um, you know, leaving others behind um, vessel you know, I mean, there has been many quarrels between the French and the Germans because the German vision is essentially one of keeping the union together and it's a form of let's keep the Ordnungsmodell um, that the EU has been despite all the problems that we've seen because... They're moving ahead with a still quite difficult Eurozone would also mean losing like-minded partners and not only the ones that, you know, some would find it easier to leave behind right now.
0: So um, maybe we're sort of running out of time, but maybe we should end on foreign policy, given that we are a kind of foreign policy think tank after all. Manuel, um, you talked before about one of the, one of the uh, interesting... Uh, paradoxes of, of this incredibly pro-european president acting in quite a sort of um unilateral way on foreign policy issues rather than the european way do you think that that's something which which might change and we I did
1: is unilater- unilateral it, but i he certainly is more multilateral than european in uh, in many ways Uh, He works uh, in UN formats, he wants to work with the G7, he wants to work with uh, ad hoc coalitions and the thing is he wants to be, as I said, at the big powers table and he began his term by doing that on a bilateral basis. It wasn't unilateral but it was very bilateral. Uh, both with Putin, with uh, Erdogan, with uh, Trump, with uh, Xi Jinping, his visits to India, etc., etc. And right now, I think he's reaching the point where precisely he can see that this kind of bilateral approach to uh, all these partners in the MENA, uh, in Asia, uh, in the transatlantic uh, issues doesn't bring as much results as uh, he thought, maybe. Uh, And certainly even uh, actually you have these situations where you don't have it's not just that you don't have so much progress uh, with uh, Russia, or with China, but actually you need to fight back in some way and to fight back or to protect your interest or just to be able to stick with your policies that you believe are in your interest at the European level. Well, you need European partners. And this is exactly what we are Uh, going to have a test case for with the Iran uh, nuclear deal? What are the Europeans going to do? I think the Europeans were quite coordinated in their approach to try to uh, probably hopelessly uh, to try to um, um, drive Trump in a more uh, realistic and uh, pragmatic uh, direction. I don't think any strategy would really have changed Trump's mind anyway. And now we are in this situation where you need to decide for yourself what you're going to do. It's about the same thing on trade, where obviously there's a problem with China. But the way the U.S. responds to uh, the Chinese problem is certainly not the way the Europeans would have it. And not just because the tariffs were raised also against European goods. Uh, and you have the same issues with uh with uh, Russia and uh, with most of, uh, of MENA uh, actors right now. And so, so we're going to
0: advertise a lot of podcasts on those things. But as we kind of bring this discussion to an end, maybe we can end with our own uh, ECFR bilan of, um, of, of Macron's first year. Um, when we did our original sto- scorecard, we had big ideological debates about whether to go with the British scoring system from A to E or the German scoring system from 1 to 5 or the French scoring system of 1 to 20. Um, I think, you know, in Macron's honour, we should mark him out of 20 on this. What mark would you give his, him after his first year, Emmanuel?
1: Uh, it's, it's like early in the year, uh, if you consider that the world term, the world 5 years term for Macron is there. And so you should probably give him some encouragement with a good mark, but also point the issues on which uh, progress and results need to be... Uh, Bro, so, so what's the <laughs> that would be kind of
2: a thirteen. I was willing to go further, Emmanuel. Uh, I was I was about to go towards a sixteen, even because I think you know the benefit of the doubt. He still has to deliver a lot of things, but he's. It looks like he's really willing to take a lot of say a lot of balls by the horns. Um, so for me, he gets a very positive one.
0: And what about you, Vesla?
3: I think maybe I should do. I should go to the middle and say what fifteen um b- because i think this would be the mark that he that we should give him according to the goals he had set for himself we should give ourselves a lower mark though because i think we're putting too many hopes uh on him
0: you guys are really tough markers particularly if you look at the competition with theresa may and uh angela merkel uh, in her current condition and trump and xi jinping um 13 to, to 18 uh, to, to, to 16 I, 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 I would give him an even higher mark but maybe I'll fail the Wessler the test um we have one more thing to do on this podcast which is our, our bookshelf uh segment um Manuel, what's on your bookshelf at the moment
1: uh I'm going to read this weekend a crime novel I always get uh Uh, mocked at in this podcast because I read only boring, uh, serious stuff. But actually, I have a a good colleague of mine from the French Foreign Service who has written this crime novel about Chile 40 years ago and Iran right now. It's called Les Saisons Inversées and uh, uh, his nom de plume, his name as an author, is Renaud S. Lyotet. And I'm sure it's very good because I liked his, uh, his previous writings very Okay, much. what about you,
2: I'm just uh, I've just started reading a book by um, uh, Michael Brüning, Lob der Nation, Praise to the Nation State. And um, this is an interesting one because here is somebody from the left, um, head of uh, strate- strategic thinking within the Friedrich-Hebert-Stiftung, um, uh, s- associated with the Social Democratic uh, Party. And um, I have to say, I mean, this is potentially a powerful thing he argues that the nation state should really be the thing to focus on and uh, you know forget about uh, all this Europeanization thing I'd, in the first pages I don't agree with his um, basic analysis of you know all the talk of ditching the nation state because I don't think it's happening um, but I will continue reading it even though I find strong disagreement already on the first pages that's always a good sign so I will read it at, it's, it's a pamphlet uh, uh, type of book and um, Lob der Nation by Michael Brünning
0: What about you Vesa?
3: I I am reading a very old book. It's um, I I decided to go back to to the roots of uh, what we have today, and most of the roots are actually Greek and Roman. And so, I'm reading a Roman book about Alexander the Great. Um, the author is called uh, Quintus Rufus, I think, in English, in Latin. Um, and he, he wrote about how Alexander had a vision for changing the world. This was the first global political vision in, in the history of mankind. It lasted for a couple of years.
0: Okay. And I'm gonna I'm gonna break with the book tradition and talk more about a kind of cultural experience. But last week um, I was in Frankfurt and um, I went to uh, visit the the Jewish Museum in Frankfurt and had a very interesting discussion with them about anti-Semitism in Germany, which is something which you can read lots about in the German newspapers at the moment. There's a, a kind of massive. Uh, debate going on about about how anti-semitism is come back to Germany and it's very interesting looking at how Germany is dealing with a sort of triple change in in attitudes towards uh, uh, Jews in this country first of all the sort of generational shift as as um, the holocaust fades further and further uh, from memory into history and young people are not kind of responsible Uh, for it anymore and their parents were not even responsible for it secondly the the rise of uh, immigration into germany and there's been a big focus on anti-semitic attacks from from syrian um, refugees and from turks who obviously don't share in the responsibility for the holocaust but also have particular attitudes but thirdly the sort of radicalization of israeli foreign policy which is um making uh Uh, Israel, a much more visible uh, part of of Judaism in Germany, given that there are virtually no Jews who live in Germany, um, most Germans will go through their whole lives without ever meeting any Jews, so they're only... Uh, connections with it come through talks about uh, about Israel in the press, and the way that the the German Museum uh, responds to that I thought was fascinating they 're moving they 're doing a lot of educational work uh, in schools where they 're kind of moving from talking about responsibility to looking at interfaith understanding how Christians, Jews, and Muslims can can live together they 're trying to also disaggregate Israel from Judaism and talk about the kind of long history of Jewish engagement in Germany. Um, as a way of of detoxifying uh, being Jewish um, over here. And finally, they look at the kind of joint roots uh, through discrimination to show how uh, to to young Muslims how Jews have also suffered from discrimination and that could be a way of pulling them together. Anyway, that brings this podcast to an end. I hope you've enjoyed listening to it. If you have, please let other people know about it through social media. We'll put links up to all of the... Publications that we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcast. But for now, from Manuel Lafont Nui, and Muller, and Vesela Chanova, myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of our podcast is Jonathan Hakenbreusch, our producer is Wiebke Evering, and our editor is Katharina Botel Azinal.